0: You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hola, hola, hello from my kitchen here in Los Angeles. And on this final day of 2020, good riddance. I'm your host, Nikki Girotto. Did you ever imagine the radical, crazy shifts we've been through this year. Uh, Okay, so in the kitchen, did you imagine that we would go from a sourdough phase to regrowing green onions to being completely obsessed with charcuterie boards? Actually, I'm not mad at that one. And I can just imagine what 2021 will bring us. I know for me, I will continue to miss the inspiration I get from going out to eat. And I started to notice a few topics come up in conversation with my sisters and friends, and they started to have like similarities and patterns. So 2021, what do you got? What do you got 2021? You know. Through this podcast, I try to give you the ways and language of the pros. And I got to thinking, what do the pros have lined up for 2021? And I'd like to give it to you, my listener. So the closest thing I could get to a crystal ball, and I swear one of these days, somebody's going to send me a crystal ball and it's going to be amazing. But until I get that crystal ball, I invited Mike Costio, the lead food trendologist at Data Essential, which is this amazing industry-leading market research firm. And Mike is the senior editor of their seven trend magazine magazines, including Food Bites 2021 Food Trend Report. So I invited Mike to chat with us to go over the trends, you know, we should be watching for in the year ahead. Mike's a cool dude. He's been on CBS radio. He was a judge on Food Network's Eating America. Mike has a master's in gastronomy from Boston University and holds certificates in culinary arts, baking, wine and artisanal cheese production. In his spare time, dude has spare time. What's up with that, Mike? In his spare time, he teaches cooking classes and was the founder of Windy City Food Swap and Social, which is a monthly food swap in Chicago. Actually, I think I kind of want Mike's job because I want to be first in line. I want to be the first to know, right? Well, I'm hoping this show moves you up to the front of the line to know what to watch for in 2021. As always, we end the show with my favorite three questions to ask every guest. So I've asked Mike what he's drinking, what's making him happy, and his favorite gift to give a friend or colleague. So from sunny Los Angeles, happy new year. Stay safe and enjoy this chat with Mike Costio, lead food trendologist of data Essential, as we talk about the trends in 2021 to watch. Enjoy. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Nikki. I'm glad to be here.
0: I am so excited to talk about the uh, Food Bites, uh, Food Trends 2021. Um, I'm a total trend nerd. I love trends. (laughs) I love to be the first in line and to know everything and then to share it with my audience. So thank you so much for making time during the holidays to chat about this amazing report. And speaking of report, Mike, you have a really cool job. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you just sit around thinking and writing about food? Like, what exactly is a trendologist?
1: Yeah, Um, I get the question, what is a trendologist a lot? Um, And it's certainly something that I never thought I would kind of fall into, when I started at our company, which is a food industry market research company. It was just in kind of a communications capacity seven years ago. They knew they needed somebody to do communications. I had a communications background. And so that's how I started at Data Central. And then we've just grown in that time. And that is how the role has evolved into what we call the trendologist at Data Central. And basically, it just means that one, it's my job to stay on top of the early stage trends. So anything far, out there, five, seven, 10 years in the future. Uh, Two, it's my job to translate those trends for our clients. So, you know, not just we're seeing something growing or we're seeing consumers really showing an interest in something, but what do you actually do with it? What's, you know, the product that you're supposed to make or the dish that you're supposed to put on the menu? And then three, we actually produce a number of food trend reports over the course of the year. So we actually have seven publications. Um, They each cover a wide variety of things. We have one that's called International Concepts that just looks at international chains around the world and what's on their menu and what's uh, trending in those markets. Uh, We have one called Dine Around that just looks at U.S. cities and towns and the chefs in those towns and what they're doing. And so I oversee the team that um, produces those reports. Uh, In a normal year, it means a lot of travel and I would get to, you know, go out and uh, go to restaurants and see what's happening and, you know, go to clients and talk to them about the trends and get into rooms and really innovate together. Uh, I would do a lot of speaking engagements at various conferences to kind of talk about the trends and the data we're seeing uh, this year, you know, it's, it's been a, a-
0: it's a little different. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, but we do. We still do it virtually. I still do a lot of virtual uh, speaking engagements. We still do a lot of virtual innovation sessions.
0: It sounds like you're managing a lot of information. And that type of work is really, really specialized. And it's not meant for everybody. Um, it's a very like pat- particular mind that can really flourish doing that kind of work. Like, Were you always this way? Like, were you the translator in your family? Like, did you see big picture ideas and had that just je ne sais quoi to be able to like translate? Are you a translator? (laughs) Um,
1: I hope they would say I'm a translator. I don't know. You know, growing up, I don't know if I would say that I was a translator so much as I would say I was incredibly curious. I loved Mm. reading. I loved, you know, just getting my hands on kind of any information that I could find. In high school, I was the editor of the school newspaper. I um, started a photo club just because it was nice to be able to go out in the community and take photos of people and meet them and interview them. And then uh, during my undergraduate degree, I studied magazine journalism. So that was a way to really, um, you know, kind of know people, interview people, kind of find out about facets of our society um, in a more in-depth way. So I guess, you know, that was kind of, um, you know, the genesis of all of this is just that um, extreme curiosity. Now, over the years, I think, yeah, you know, kind of that curation and the idea of translating it has become more a part of my toolbox.
0: I think that journalism is such, um, such a priceless tool because curiosity is one thing, but to be able to distill context. And point of view is what gives value to this big old box of data, right?
1: I could not agree more, yeah. And I mean, if anything, we have more data than ever these days. You know, we all walk around with a tiny computer in our pockets that is constantly churning out data that we can use. Um, You know, every brand that we work with, every restaurant operator that we work with has insane amounts of data that they have to crunch. And so, yeah, it's harder than ever in some ways, just because there's so much information out there that we're trying to translate and, and make sense of.
0: And speaking of making sense of of this information, um, in doing research for the show, I feel like your point of view is gastronomy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. more than just culinary.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Can you help the audience understand the difference between gastronomy and culinary? Because I feel like in the retail space, it kind of means the same thing, but it doesn't.
1: Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. I think you hear the word gastronomy and maybe you think the gastronomy of a country. So you think French cuisine or Indian cuisine and you kind of do tend to think that it's just the dishes and ingredients within that cuisine. But it is actually the intersection of both that so the intersection of food and our culture as a whole. So that's really what gastronomy encompasses. Um, And the reason that I got into gastronomy is because I attended Boston University's gastronomy program. So go be you. Uh, Yes, Uh, (laughs) it was uh, an incredible, incredible experience. It is a program that was started by Jacques Pepin and Julia Child for anybody that wants to research food from that perspective. So not necessarily you want to be a chef in the future, but you want to study it from an anthropological perspective or a business perspective. And I had actually worked in politics um, right after my undergraduate degree. Um, And then kind of had enough of that, decided, you know, I was going to change careers, and food had really been my passion for a number of years. So I ended up going into this program. I thought I was going to combine the two. I thought I was going to, uh, you know, go work for the USDA and I was going to do the food policy track at BU. Instead, um, the head of the program at that time was a food anthropologist. And so it was a lot more looking at, you know, why we make the food choices that we do and, um, you know, the the food cultures and histories, um, you know, that um, kind of inspire us, I guess I would say, um, in our food choices. And so that's kind of how I evolved in the program. I did get my culinary degree. They do have the option that you can get your culinary. Oh, you did. Baking degree. Yeah. So I I did end up doing that as well. Um, Did you do savory and pastry? I did. Yeah. So I did the culinary program the one year and then I did the pastry program um, the next year. And then I actually um, ended up doing they have a cheese production, artisan cheese production
0: program. Sign me up right now.
1: It was incredible. That was uh, maybe my favorite
0: portion. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I started the wine program. I I thought I was going to get my, uh, you know, sommelier certificate but it's so much memorization and so i kind of just figured you know i'm going to enjoy wine and maybe you know not so much memorize all the wines of the world
0: well i feel like you have all of this information and you have a fantastic point of view and you have legit street cred uh going through going through the culinary program and pivoting to what data sent uh, data essential presents in this in this uh food bites trends 2021 i'm wondering wondering if we could just chat real quickly about how it all comes together, because you seem to know how to put stuff together.
1: <laughs> I hope thanks do.
0: How does it work? Like, do you have like a database of all of these menus? I mean, do you have like secret shoppers? How exactly does it all come together?
1: Sure, absolutely. So the way that Food Bites comes together every year, and Food Bites is one of those trend publications that we produce. It's our free publication. So absolutely anybody can and get it um, whether you're in the industry or you're not in the industry. The way that Food Bites comes together every year is we actually uh, poll the company. So we will ask absolutely anybody and everybody at the company, what have you been seeing? What have you been researching? Um, You know, just from your perspective, whatever that perspective happens to be. You know, we have people at the company who kind of do a job like I do and work on the trend and visions team. And then we have, you know, the data crunchers, and they're just, you know, maybe they came from a different industry that wasn't necessarily food, but they just, know numbers really well. And so they came to Data Central. But everybody has a say in it because, you know, everybody just has that perspective that um, we really appreciate and then um, we have a team at the company. It's called the Trend and Visions team, and we get together and we distill all that down. So we, um, it's usually a four or five hour discussion that happens over multiple days, where we look at absolutely everything.
0: So what what exactly are you looking at? Are you looking at menus? Are you looking at sales reports? Are you looking at chatter? Do you use artificial intelligence? Like, what are the pieces? Like the big pieces that you look at? Yeah,
1: um, pretty much all of the above. Menu intelligence is um, the most important for us. So we have a database called Menu Trends. Uh, we update it once a year, so we can see what's happening on the American menu. We can see this ingredient is growing, this ingredient is dropping. Um, we actually have a—it's um, a machine learning engine, artificial intelligence engine called haiku that is based in that program. So it can actually take all of that data and then spit out, you know, almost like a crystal ball, what it thinks is going to be on the menu in the next four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so we use kind of all of the above. We do over the course of the year, um, you know, focus groups and surveys, both consumer surveys and operator or chef surveys. We do, uh, but it is based in the data. So we are a data, centric company. We're data central. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of times what you'll see from some other reports is it tends to be very anecdotal. You know, I ate this last week and I think it tasted really good. So I think it's going to be on the menu everywhere. Whereas for us, you know, maybe that could be the starting point. Maybe we ate someplace and then we, you know, felt like it was delicious or we felt like we were seeing it a lot. But then we'll dive into the data and see if it actually is backed up by the data that we're with.
0: So when you're diving into the data, are there different levels? of how you analyze, like, does a trend have a lifespan?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, a trend has a lifespan. We track a trend's lifespan through what we call the menu adoption cycle, which for the longest time only took into account menus, because when the company started, we would survey consumers and they would say, you know, we trust the chef to introduce to introduce us to a trend first before we'll go to the you know supermarket and buy a new ingredient. We want them to kind of translate this trend for us. Now that's changing a bit. Um, you know, people have gotten a lot savvier. They're really willing to try new trends earlier. So now it takes into account both retail trends and menu trends. Uh, But that menu adoption cycle, it's a four-stage cycle. Trends start in what we call the inception stage of the menu adoption cycle. It tends to be those fine dining operators. It tends to be those chefs that, you know, you're going for that prefix meal where you're trusting the chef um, to really introduce you to something new. That's the type of chef who will work with one of those really early stage trends. Um, From there, trends move through the adoption stage, which tends to be, um, you know, if that chef opens up, you know, maybe a more casual space in your neighborhood that's, um, you know, a little bit of a cheaper price point. Maybe it's that cool, uh, you know, bar and grill, but it's also kind of driven by, uh, you know, a really interesting chef that tends to be the adoption stage, which is kind of the the sweet spot of the industry right now. You know, a lot of the clients that come to us and they're like, I want to put something cool on the menu. It tends to come from that stage of the menu
0: adoption site. The adoption stage. Yeah, yes.
1: Yeah. The adoption mm-hmm. stage. And then from there, it goes to the proliferation stage, which tends to be what we call QSRs or uh, quick service restaurants, uh, which most people would call fast food restaurants. So at that point, you know, we'll start seeing some of the McDonald's of the world, the subways, you know, start to uh, engage with the trend. At that point, you know, it probably is at your local supermarket, you know. Um, and then by the time it hits the final stage, the ubiquity stage, everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. You know, it's uh, probably on 60, 70, 80 percent of menus. You'll find it at your you know, local discount supermarket, uh, you know, someplace like that.
0: Um, I'd be really curious to know your thought on this. Do you think that the influence of chefs at fine dining have a lot more weight than the influence of, let's say, a street cart? Cook or even a food truck, because here in Los Angeles, what I have found is innovation happens in a, in a, it's not a linear line. It doesn't go, it, it's not like Melisse or Providence or Bestia. And those are fantastic restaurants. But, you know, you have the Kogi truck, you have the triple threat Puerto Rican food truck and innovation and opening the eyes to the Los Angeles market happens in this, really um, vibrant and fertile uh, environment. Do you think that a Michelin star chef has more influence than a street cart chef? At one point,
1: yes. I think at one point it would have been true that a Michelin star chef would have more influence. Now Mm -hmm. uh, those walls have broken down so much. I mean, uh, you know, now we have street carts in the world that have Michelin stars. So, uh, you know, I think the idea that, you know, trends only come from fine dining, Um, has really broken down a lot. Uh, Even fine dining, you know, what we used to call fine dining, isn't really fine dining like it used to be. Um, You know, we don't see those white tablecloth restaurants that require you to wear, you know, a suit and tie. For many chefs, you know, owning that, um, you know, kind of cool, hip, lower price point restaurant is what they want to be doing.
0: Why do you think it changed? Why do you think that the the fine dining world changed and the trend world changed? What do you think happened?
1: I think a lot of it is information. So, you know, consumers have a lot more access to information. Uh, Before, you know, to try a street food trend, you had to travel to that country to see it happening. Now, you know, we have TikTok, we have Instagram, we have social media, um, we, you know, have phones in our pockets where we can share with our friends and family what we've been eating. Now we have access to trends at all levels um, in a way that we never did before. Um, which I think has really impacted the, it's impacted us as an industry, certainly. Um, you know, before you know we would talk about trends moving through that life cycle, they would it would take about a dozen years for something to move from inception to adoption. Uh, now it takes about half that, about six years. and information is a big part of that just because trends move so quickly now.
0: Wow. So am I hearing correctly that influencers in the social media landscape are starting to weigh more heavily on the trends that are that are bubbling and taking root?
1: Yes, absolutely. Influencers particularly in social media, um, are impacting the industry a lot. Uh, One way is that, you know, for the longest time, fads were kind of considered, you know, maybe, you know, it's kind of a cool, fun thing that consumers, you know, want to see, but then, you know, it's going to die off immediately. Now, I mean, fads are actually quite important to the industry because um, a lot of younger consumers love them so much. Um, It keeps things interesting. Uh, You know, when the trend cycle is moving so quickly, the difference between a fad that moves you know, in one or two years, and a trend that moves in three and four years is is not necessarily that different anymore. You know,
0: I also feel that the uh, publishing world and the uh, I hate to call it world cuisine because that's so that's a slap in the face, but I do feel that there is a proliferation of books that are not coming from chefs. They're not. Hey, I'm a chef. I have a restaurant. Here's my cookbook. These are cooks and culinarians, anthropologists, writers, social media, uh, influencers that are getting book deals. And if you look at what we were seeing on the shelf 10 years ago, you would never have seen like Nick Sharma's book or even, um, like salt, fat, acid, heat, or any of these really interesting. Okay world cuisine books, you're seeing a lot of proliferation of those. And it's introducing us to ingredients, techniques, concepts, cultures, that we, did, we weren't exposed to previously. And I think it's fantastic.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the Food Bites report is that that role of the chef is evolving, you know? So whereas before, maybe we would put that chef on a pedestal and we would see the cool things we we're doing, but we couldn't interact with that chef. You know, we didn't get to ask the chef any questions. I mean, just in the past year, I mean, we've seen the number of chefs doing Zoom classes, doing, you know, Instagram live events. Now you can actually, you know, talk to Samin Nasriat and ask her. You know, I was you know cooking out of salt, fat, acid, heat, and I wanted to switch out this ingredient. And you can actually ask her about you know the things that uh, you know she's seen in her life and what she thinks about the cuisine. So I think um, you know just that kind of personal uh, relationship that we can have with chefs now uh, is really changing the industry as well.
0: That was one of the first. So let's pivot. Let's get let's get into the trends. Let's let's let let's dig in. Let's dig in. I can't wait. Um, that's that's one of the things that. Um, let me take one step back. Mm-hmm. What I found really interesting about the report and why I picked up the phone, well, I didn't. I didn't pick up the phone. I emailed you, and why I re- why I reached out to you is because you, I'm an insider, but you're way on the inside, and so when a person way on the inside reflects what you are experiencing. So what I was experiencing was conversations with my friends and my colleagues, and then consuming media. That is it exactly what you're talking about in this report. And so when what I was experiencing was mirrored in your report, I knew that this was hot. Ah,
1: I want to put that like, quote wow. on the front of the report. <laughs>
0: I knew it was hot. I was like, I gotta talk to Mike about this. And so I pulled out uh, four or five trends that I think really apply to my listener at home. And one of the first ones was what we were just talking about, the future chef. Mm-hmm. And I think, man, you know, the COVID kitchen is killing us. It's like, we're, we're stranded at home, we're making three meals a day, we're over it, we're over it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a culinary degree, or if you aren't trained in how to cook, mm-hmm. from, t- from technique, not from recipe, yes, yeah, then the idea of looking at like your shelf of cookbooks and figuring out what to make with your kids looking in your face, like, mommy, I'm hungry. It's it's overwhelming. It's incredibly overwhelming. So to have access to chefs who can entertain you, you know, educate you and inspire you is bomb. It's rock star. Yes. It's so exciting.
1: And the chefs are excited too. You know, part of the reason that we included that in the report is because we work with chefs a lot you know, we work with them, particularly research and development chefs at a lot of the big companies who are behind the scenes. And, you know, they're using these trends to inform the things that they're going to create for the companies they work for in the future. Uh, but they often don't get a chance to connect with the consumer, the end consumer who's going to use the product. And so, you know, the idea for them, and, and we've seen it happen time and time again at these companies, that they can actually put themselves out there, that the, you know, consumer or the end user wants to talk to them and wants to say, you know, this is how I use it, or this is, you know, what my family thinks of it, or, you know, I want to ask you a question about it. Uh, most chefs are very creative, you know, passionate people who want to share that with you. And so I think from both ends of the spectrum, there's a lot of excitement.
0: I was excited to see Grant ackett on <laughs> on social. I mean, so so Chef Grant is from Alinea in Chicago, and it, the, Alinea is so high on my my, you know, to go list. And it was just so interesting to see him um, in his personal kitchen, like doing tutorials on fine dining in styrofoam boxes. Come on come on, it doesn't get any cooler than that. And we
1: heard from a number of those. I mean, we heard from, uh, Grant himself has said, you know, they don't think after, even after COVID is over, that things will ever go back to the way it was previously in terms of fine dining, because they've loved that opportunity to reach, you know, wider audiences. I mean, uh, you know, Alinea is an amazing restaurant, but it's also an incredibly expensive restaurant that, uh, you know, not everybody's going to get to experience. But I think over the past year, here, you know, Chef Atkes has found that he's liked connecting with you know the average consumer. He's liked to show them the things that he can create. So I think we will see you know the, what we talked about previously—that kind of breaking down of the walls between fine dining and street food and you know casual cuisine. It's only going to continue more into the future.
0: Well, I'm going to put I'm going to put out a wish into the future, and I hope she's listening. Um, but my wish is to have Dominique Cren. Oh, yes. Do a tutorial for me. Dominique, Chef Dominique, if you're listening, hi, I'm Nikki. And would you please do tutorials for us? <laughs> She's probably like, I don't have time. And now. <laughs> so that's that's the first trend that I saw. And I, I think I think you called it the future chef. Uh-huh. right?
1: Yeah, exactly. The future chef is a chef who will be more personal to, you know, the average. Person.
0: I love it. I love it. And now. I want to pivot to something that is near and dear to me because carbs and I are <laughs> are very good friends. Like carbs and I just hang out. We we watch the great the great British bake off show. We hang out. We're good friends. Um <laughs> and so in the the 2021 report, I saw that the, the like the one trend that feels really cozy is modern Comfort like going beyond mac and cheese. Tell me, elaborate a little bit about what this trend is, what it revealed, and how do you think it's going to play out in the marketplace? Sure, absolutely.
1: So the modern comfort food trend came just because we were doing so many conversations. We had so many conversations at Data Central in 2020 about comfort food with clients. Um, You know, early in March, we started fielding our COVID research every week. We've done about two reports a week where we would just ask consumers across the country. You know, what are you buying right now? What do you want right now? And from the get-go, you know, from mid to late March, it was all comfort food. It was a stressful time. Everybody was at home. You know, their families were at home uh, learning. You know, they had to um, take care of their kids and also, you know, be on camera at work. And uh, there's a global health crisis happening. So it's just so stressful for the average consumer. So it was no surprise that, you know, they really wanted those comforting dishes that either they grew up with or they knew their whole family would like. Um, The number one food that everybody wanted was pizza. Uh, it kept coming up over and over and over again. Uh, we have a database where we just ask, you know, what do you think about this food? Do you love it? Do you eat it a lot? And the most loved food out of every single food—it's something like 4,500 foods that we've ever tested—is pizza, and has been pizza since we've been testing.
0: As it should be. Uh, Yeah, really. So that,
1: you know, early on, you know, all of these, you know, restaurants and brands were coming to us and they said, you know, what do consumers want? Um, You know, what are the comfort foods that they want to see us putting out there? And so it was the pizzas, the burgers, pastas were absolutely huge carbs. Definitely. Everybody was baking bread. Um, But, you know, by the end, uh, you know, more recently, I won't call it the end of the pandemic, but hopefully we're, you know, reaching the end of the pandemic pretty soon. Um, But, you know, consumers have gotten a little tired of some of that, you know, they uh, are, are at home, they're eating the same things quite often, they're not going out to restaurants. And so they want new things, you know, they want things that will excite them a bit more. And so we started talking about, you know, what will the comfort foods of the future be? And one way that we could look at that was, well, what do younger consumers consider to be comfort foods? You know, a lot of times comfort food equates to what we grew up on. And for a lot of, you know, Gen Z consumers, the things that they grew up on are are, you know, different from the things that I grew up on as a millennial, or you know, things that other generations have grew up on, and so the things that really you know jumped out as comforting to them might be surprising to the average person. Um, so soup is kind of the ultimate comfort category. You know, everybody loves a warm, cozy bowl of soup, and so you know, a lot of times we would talk to a client, and you know, the things that they would turn to immediately were chicken noodle soup, tomato soup, you know, broccoli cheddar soup. Those are the, you know the ultimate um, comfort foods. For a younger consumer who grew up with, uh, you know, more global cuisines, uh, ramen is very comforting to them, you know, so that's uh, absolutely a comfort food option that, you know, if you were putting a comfort food menu together, you might not think, you know, ramen is the first thing, but for a large percentage of, you know, the population, that is very comforting. Uh, health foods tend to not be considered, you know, very comforting, you know, it does tend to be those very cheesy or bacony or carby dishes, but for some younger consumers, um, avocados are very very comforting. You know, they grew up, they ate avocado toast. It still has that, you know, fatty, rich kind of taste to it, but they feel better about what they're eating. And so that makes them feel comforted. Um, One surprising one to a lot of people is uh, carrot sticks. Uh, is a comfort food for a lot of younger consumers, you know, they came home and that was kind of a healthy option that their mom or dad would give them after school um, or that they had in their lunch box. So it kind of recalls those memories of, you know, after school with your parents. Um, and so, you know, I think that surprises people, but for a good percentage of, um, you know, the consumer population out there carrot sticks are absolutely comforting. So it's just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, rethinking what you consider comfort foods to be.
0: In the soup category, uh, what I see so prevalent here in Los Angeles, and I'd be really curious to know if this is the case across the country, but pha. Fa, fa is so popular for a for good reason. It's so good.
1: A hundred percent. Yes. I'm um, sure if I looked in the database right now, yeah. So ramen, you know, pha is almost the next the next, you know, iteration of ramen. You know, we'd see
0: So how would you describe Fa? Like what exactly is Fa? Sure. Absolutely.
1: So Fa is kind of the almost the next iteration of ramen. So we saw, you know, ramen really growing on, on menus, which is, you know, a Japanese noodle dish, um, you know, soup. And pho is almost the next generation of that. It also comes out of Asia. It comes out of um, Vietnam. And it's that same, you know, brothy, noodley, uh, you know, usually has a bit of meat in there type of soup um, cooked in the same way that, you know, ramen broths tend to be for long, long periods of time. So, you know, you're really getting that rich, comforting um, umami taste in there I think the nice thing about pho is that you tend to put you know all those herbs on top so you're gonna like you see so much in Vietnam piling up the herbs on top um which also you know so you get that fresh healthy flavor in there as well um we've seen you know pho growing on menus um quite a bit certainly on the coasts LA has really been a hotbed of pho Another one to to look at is pozole. So we've seen pozole growing quite often on menus, which is um, a Mexican meat stew that uh, you know is very comforting, very rich. Uh, we particularly see it on winter menus quite often.
0: Uh, I'm. I know pozole because when you work in the restaurant business, you have what you call a family meal. And especially here in LA, it's a Mexican heavy staff. And when they introduced pozole in family meal, I was like, what do you mean family meal? This is like the greatest meal. Yes. Yeah. It's like with the the big, um, the big chunks of meat and, and the, the viscous broth is so beautiful. And the, co- the hominy, the big pieces of, of hominy are just so delicious. So finally in the, in the modern comfort, did you see anything on the sweet side, on the dessert side that popped a lot?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So on the sweeter side of modern comfort foods, um, you know, one flavor that's quickly becoming um, kind of a staple in the same way that you see vanilla and chocolate is birthday cake flavor.
0: What is birthday cake flavor? What is that?
1: It is the birthday cake that you think of. So it tends to be that, um, you know, really rich sprinkle cake that, uh, you know, sometimes maybe has that Um, I don't want to call it a chemical taste to it, but it probably is that boxed mix where it's, you know, incredibly fluffy um, and just has something about it where all the flavors come together in a particular way. Um, You know, the way we see it, you know, quite often used on menus is it, is that really vanilla forward, also very sweet, uh, sometimes including sprinkles um, type of flavor or ingredient that we'll see used across, you know, now you see it kind of in any dessert category. So you'll see uh, birthday cake, ice creams, on menus. You'll see, um, oddly birthday cake flavored frostings that you can actually frost a birthday cake with. So, oh, wow. Really going yeah down the uh, inception <laughs> hole, but, uh, for a younger consumer, you know, it is, it's, uh, you know, you grew up, you, you know, ate birthday cake, you blew the candles out. It's a nice memory. Um, uh, and so we've seen that growing quite often on menus.
0: I'd love to see a birthday cake flavored, um, uh like a, a toaster pastry oh like yeah
1: a, like a pop tart <laughs> and so, so that is uh pop tarts um or toaster pastries in general are another modern comfort foods particularly oh really yeah uh, you know, and now you know that has really grown into the gourmet versions of it. But for a lot of younger consumers, you know, they grew up. That was the thing they ate in the morning. You know, when they were on their way to school, or they could throw it in their backpack. So again, it you know kind of recalls um, you know their childhood. But now, I mean, we've seen so many pastry chefs really take it in new directions, take it um, you know in a really more artisan direction where the fillings are you know farm fresh um, you know fruits and ingredients that you would get from your local farmers market. The pastry is, you know, lovingly made pastry that's incredibly flaky. So um, yes, that's absolutely a modern comfort food is the the kind of next generation of toaster pastries.
0: Yumbelina, I love it. Um, Okay, so pivoting to the third uh, trend that really caught my eye, and that is American regional cuisine. Mm -hmm. So what is popping in the regional cuisine category that's going to be something we should look forward to in 2021?
1: Absolutely. So the reason that we chose American regional cuisine as a trend to watch in 2021 is because Uh, to some extent in 2020, we kind of had to look inward, you know, we couldn't travel around the world, we kind of were um, forced to stay home. And uh, a lot of the travel happened more domestically. So maybe you went on a road trip in the US, um, or maybe you explored, you know, your local community, maybe you started to order from local restaurants that you hadn't ordered from before. And so we kind of saw this inward looking um, kind of focus in the US. And that also coincided with um, just this idea of really giving, you know, know, chefs from across cultures, more credit for, you know, the cuisine of that we call American cuisine. Um, You know, a lot of times I think when we hear American cuisine, we do, we think of, you know, apple pie, and then there's like a lot of Southern dishes that we tend to think of. Uh, But really, you know, we are a melting pot as a country. There are a lot of different, you know, people who came to the United States and created the cuisines that, you know, we would call American cuisines today. You know, that kind of desire to give chefs and cooks, you know, from throughout history, that credit has really uh, resulted in kind of a focus and a new appreciation for all of these American regional cuisines. So they tend to be cuisines that unless you live in those areas, um, you may not know them or you may not have as much access to them. Um, You know, unless you live uh, on the eastern coast, you may not know um, Gullah Geechee cuisine. What is that? Um, So it's uh, Gullah Geechee cuisine is a cuisine that was developed by slaves who were brought over from Africa, and they used the ingredients that were available uh, to them on the eastern coast, particularly on the islands off the eastern coast um, of the U.S. And so it tends to be ingredients, um, you know, rices. A lot of the rices that we've actually seen trending in recent years um, that, you know, some of the companies, you know, that have been very successful in recent years, heritage varieties of rices actually come out of Golagichi cuisine.
0: What do you mean heritage? What do you mean by heritage rice. What does that mean? A heritage
1: rice is actually uh you know a historic rice that actually if you trace its DNA ancestry back it is um I don't know if you would say natural I guess natural would be a way to say it uh, but a lot of the rices we eat you know tend to be farmed rices that have been um, genetically modified over the years or you know we've just kind of um you know uh, hy- hybridized them over the years whereas these were the original rices that you would find in the United States you know and indigenous peoples use these rices Gullah Geechee, um, you know, people use these rices. So, uh, you know, the same way that you see a heritage tomato, where, you know, it is that old, you know, heirloom seed that, you know, creates that tomato. It's the same way for rice, you know, and there, there's a version of that for pretty much any ingredient.
0: Interesting. And so what are, give me like two or three other regional cuisines that listeners can um, investigate and discover and maybe switch up things in their kitchen by trying these cuisines that that are becoming popular.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we see consumers really want to try these cuisines. Uh, They just don't have the opportunity to do it quite as often. Uh, You know, one cuisine that I think is really misunderstood in the United States is Appalachian cuisine. And so, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of times people hear that. And sadly, you know, they think of, um, you know, I, I don't want to use derogatory terms, but unfortunately I think there are some, Um, you know, misunderstood connotations to Appalachian cuisine, that, you know, it is a cuisine that I I guess the word hillbilly, unfortunately, comes up a lot when you think of it. Um, But actually, it's a very vibrant cuisine. Um, You know, if you think of how foraged foods have been trending for a number of years, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, Appalachian peoples have been foraging forever. They've been using, indigenous peoples have been, you know, foraging forever. You know, they've been using the ingredients that, you know, are around them. Um, And so when you look at, you know, the types of uh, dishes that you would find in, you know, Appalachian cuisine, it's also very comforting. You know, it tends to be stews that are cooked for, uh, you know, long periods of time. Uh, Nose to tail cooking, again, you know, very, you know, trendy. You know, we've been seeing it on menus for years now. I mean, they've been cooking nose to tail forever because you had to, you know, so I think that's another, you know, reason why you should give some of these regional cuisines a look is because, you know, they're almost the originators, of a lot of these trends that have come up over the years. I,
0: yeah, I couldn't agree with you more because to get a stew right is not, is not so easy. It's not so easy. You can come out with like rubber meat if you really don't know what you're doing, or even if you're making bread uh, without yeast, I mean it takes it takes craft yes. to make bread that doesn't have yeast or it takes craft to butcher an animal and honor the animal like you said nose to tail and really know what to do with the beautiful you know loin pieces vis-à-vis mm-hmm. vis- vis- vis the the more tough overused muscles mm-hmm. and that takes a lot of intelligence yeah. and a and a lot of skill to cook down something that it seems tough But if you know what to do with it, you create luxury.
1: Could not agree more. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these dishes that, you know, come out of these cuisines, they've been perfected for decades and decades, you know, if not centuries at this point. Uh, You know, they have them down. They're going to be delicious if you cook them, you know. Uh, I think that's what's exciting about them. Another one that you're probably more familiar with, but, you know, for those of us who don't live in California, but Calmex cuisine. Oh, please. Actually, yeah, really. Of California, you know, the fresh ingredients, the coastal ingredients you have there. And then, you know, the Mexican population that has brought, you know, so many of their traditions. uh, You know, we don't get that as much in the rest of the U.S. Um, I think you're starting to see it a bit more, um, but uh, we just don't have access to it in the same way that you guys
0: do. And I'm so excited that you brought that up because Mexican cuisine, I'm not an expert on Mexican cuisine whatsoever, but what I have seen in being having been in California for 15 years is that Mexican cuisine isn't just tacos.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And it isn't just burritos. There are so many beautiful dishes that I've I've discovered, you know, from Oaxaca or from the coastal regions, and they have no semblance to what the middle of the country or even the East Coast has ever seen. It's it's fresh ingredients. It's delicious. The, the, the ingredients are honored in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And it's so exciting to see, you know, something that you just don't expect from like the normal you know, expectations of of Mexican food. And I'm excited for it to roll out across the country even more. Yeah
1: absolutely I think that's such a good point too just about the regionality of all cuisines you know I mean we have these you know regional cuisines in the US but just about every country does as well you know I mean there's no really such thing as Mexican cuisine there's regions within Mexico that have their own cuisines we're seeing the same thing um, with Indian cuisine that consumers are getting a little bit more savvy in the u.s about you know the regions of India and the different cuisines that you would find there so I think that's also part and parcel of just the information that we have access to today like we talked about
0: before and i do want listeners to know that i'm going to put all of this information in the show notes i mean we still have some topics to cover but um it could feel overwhelming when you're listening to a podcast and you're like wait what did what did they just say so i i will include all of this in the show notes okay and now pivoting to um taking care of ourselves you know through food um one of the one of the trends that i saw that was I was like, okay, let's let's talk about this because I want to feel better about myself, uh-huh. is global health and immunity boosters, like functional food. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in this trend and how you see it rolling out in the year to come.
1: So the global functional food trend that we're talking about for 2021 um, also came out of some of the research that we did in 2020 surrounding COVID, which is, um, you know, it is, it's a global health crisis. People are worried about their health. And so at the same time that they were eating comfort foods and, you know, maybe some things that weren't as good for them, uh, they were still concerned about their health and, and the health of their families as well. For a lot of people, you know, they were having to feed their family three times a day, and so they wanted to make sure their family was healthy. And so when we asked consumers, you know, how are you eating? You know, how do you want to eat in the future? Uh, One of the surprising statistics to us uh, was that over half of consumers said that they wanted to see immune boosting ingredients in absolutely every food that they eat. So a lot of times, you know, we'll work with the client and the, you know, we're going to put a healthy dish together or we want to put some immune boosting ingredients into a dish. It's the categories that you immediately think of, those healthy categories. Smoothies probably being the number one or a smoothie bowl, something like that. Uh, You would expect to find, you know, those healthy ingredients there. But consumers told us we want to see healthy and immune boosting ingredients on burgers. We want to see them on pizzas. We want to see them in burritos. Uh, You know, it was kind of a surprise you know, something that came out of the research.
0: Wait a second, Mike. Wait, 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 a, wait a second. You mean to tell me I can boost my immunity with my pizza order? <laughs> I don't know. How does that How does that work? It
1: sounds ridiculous. But actually, when you ask consumers, you know, what do you perceive to be immune boosting? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of foods out there that are absolutely immune boosting. Uh, you know, greens are definite, you know, kales and spinaches and, you know, any of those really hearty greens. I mean, you can put that on top of a pizza, you know, make it a little bit healthier. Garlic is one of the top ingredients that consumers perceive to be very, you know, healthy and immune boosting. And we put garlic in anything, you know, we put garlic on burgers and pizzas and pastas. The number one category by far that, you know, most people consider to be immune boosting is um, vitamin C and citrus. So, and you can put that pretty much anywhere. I mean, we see, you know, citrus fruits used in desserts. So there's absolutely no reason that you can't use these ingredients, um, you know, in a more indulgent dish. And so that kind of informs some of this research that went into this, um, you know, look at global immune boosting ingredients. And part of it was this idea that um, almost what, we were just talking about with American regional cuisine that it's been perfected over you know long periods of time, you know hundreds of years. Um, in some countries, you know they've been using what we call superfoods in the U.S. for thousands of years. You know they've known the you know functional benefits that they get out of some of these foods, and they've been using them for thousands of years. And so we've seen a lot of interest in past years, um, you know, from consumers to start using a lot of these superfoods. You know we see acai berries growing on many. Menus. We've, um, you know, seen quinoa grow as you know such an important ingredient on menus. So we wanted to look at what's the next generation of these. And so um, I have to give credit to we have a registered dietitian at the company, Marie Moldy, and she was the one who informed a lot of this research um, and a lot of the ingredients that we speak about. So I wish I was, you know, actually more of an expert in these very particular ingredients. Um, you know, some of them I couldn't even pronounce before we. Uh, put the report together, a lot of them tend to be adaptogens. What does that mean? An adaptogen is an ingredient that helps your body adapt to stress. Um, And of course, we've been very stressed out in the past year. And modern life in general tends to be very stressful. So even when, you know, the pandemic is over, it's not like, unfortunately, a lot of our stresses go away. So, you know, adaptogens have been a real focus for the industry. So, you know, a lot of the ones that we include in the report um, tend to be adaptogens. Uh, there's been a real focus on roots over the past uh, couple of years, uh, using roots to create flowers or to, you know, um, so, you know, flowers that you could bake with uh, or create a cracker with or something like that. Um, we see it a lot in uh, beverages. Beverage uh, innovation tends to be a really hot category. Um, you know, for a while there, we were seeing those next generation coffees, kind of bulletproof coffee that was supposed to be good for your brain that, you know, so we're seeing a lot of kind of that innovation start to happen with some of these ingredients as well
0: sounds so exciting. I mean, it's, food is medicine. Food is medicine. And now pivoting to the final trend that that really caught my eye, and that is global flavors that we could try in our kitchens, flavors, dishes, and ingredients. Can you give listeners a sneak peek into some of the flavors, dishes, and ingredients that are going to pop that they should check out?
1: Uh, This section of the report is my favorite section of the report. We do it every year. It's the 10 uh, flavors and ingredients that you should have on your radar. They tend to be very forward-looking. So it tends to be ingredients that you'll see, um, you know, three, four, five years down the road really start showing up on menus. Um, They're informed by our databases. They're informed by, you know, where we've been eating out and then actually, you know, fielding research based on it. And they're probably one of the most um, anticipated parts of the report. Because it's very easy, you know I, it's just I can use this ingredient you know next year and kind of be cool and trendy and so you know some of the ones that are in there that I think are so exciting and uh, just personally I think are very delicious are um, one is fermented honey what it actually it surprises people for a number of reasons one just you know they've never heard of it but two the idea that you can even ferment honey because honey um, by its very nature is actually you know an ingredient that Um, Is antibacterial, you know, there's a reason you can keep honey in your kitchen for 100 years, and it's going to be just as good in 100 years um, as it was when you put it in there. Um, But actually, if you use some of the raw honeys that have been trending in recent years, and you add just a little bit of water to them, you break down that sterile environment, and now some good bacteria can start growing in there. And so, you know, fermentation has been huge for, for quite a while now. We see kombuchas on menus. We see all the next generations of yogurts. And so this takes, you know, sweet, natural honey. Who doesn't love honey? You can use it in a baked good. You could use it in a dessert. But it gives it that, you know, slightly funkier, you know, almost more sour flavor um, that just kind of ups the interest level. Uh, I, I, it's absolutely delicious. And I think maybe of all the trends that we covered in that section, I think it's the one that you'll probably be seeing um, the most often in the next couple of years.
0: Wow. Fermented honey. I, I had no idea. I had no idea and if you could if you could give maybe one or two other ones from the ingredients or dish lists So uh, one
1: that we've covered so you know like I said consumers are very interested in citrus uh, because it does tend to be considered an immune boosting ingredient. And so there's a citrus fruit that we've seen growing on menus for a couple years now, particularly in cocktails. Um, actually there's a number of restaurants in LA in our database that I know feature this ingredient but it's um, Sudachi which is a citrus, Uh, it comes out of Japan. It's quite common in Japan. If you've ever used panzu, which is kind of that citrus soy sauce, um, that tends to include sudachi citrus. Uh, We see it quite often because it's used as a kind of next generation version of yuzu. So if you've seen yuzu a lot on menus, you know, that chef who kind of wants to take it to the next level and do something that people haven't seen, they might use sudachi citrus. It's a little bit more floral. It kind of doesn't have, um, you know, some of those sharp notes that you may consider um, with limes or lemons that you see in the US. And uh, again, it's just the applications for any citrus fruit are endless. You can use them in cocktails, you can use them in desserts. Uh, We see it quite often if you're making um, a meat entree or a veggie entree, Uh, if you're gonna do that final squeeze of citrus at the end to really brighten up the dish, um, Sudachi citrus kind of takes it to the next level. I would love it. Another one in there, uh, honeysuckle. We're seeing uh, honeysuckle growing on menus quite a bit. Um, And we're actually seeing it growing in retail products a bit more, kind of early stage retail products. We've seen floral flavors really growing for a number of years. Uh, Rose, you know, not, you know, rosé has been growing, but then the actual uh, flower rose, you know, and the flavor that you can get from roses has been growing for quite a bit now. The interest in Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cuisine has really driven an interest in rose-flavored things. Lavender continues to grow on menus. And so this is kind of, again, that next generation of it. Um, It's another foraged ingredient. Uh, Some people have been foraging for it for years. You'll see foragers make honeysuckle syrups quite often. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and But now we see it used again across the menu. Cocktails are uh, another big category for this. There are a couple of uh, bottled liqueurs that use honeysuckle in it. Um, but you'll probably start seeing this really grow as a flavor more in the next couple of years.
0: You've given our audience so many interesting tidbits and things to think about in incorporating these trends in their kitchens. But honestly, Mike, to try new flavors and to try new ingredients, it's not cheap it really is not cheap. What would be your advice on assimilating or incorporating some of these ideas and ingredients and trends into the everyday kitchen? Like what would be your advice?
1: That's a great point. We often run into that um, with consumers, that it is not cheap. And particularly now, if you're at home and you're making food for your entire family, um, you often can't take that risk that, you know, at the end of um, the day, your whole family is not going to like the dish that you put on the table. And so uh, people do tend to be risk averse in that way. You know, they don't necessarily um, want to commit the money to trying a new trend. But what we often say is, um, for whether you're in the industry or not in the industry, um, to use what we call safe experimentation as kind of your starting point. And so that's the idea of taking something that you already know and love. So it's things, you know, we've talked about today, burgers, pizzas, pastas, things like that. You already know that, you know, that's a dish that you tend to enjoy. You've maybe made it a few times. So you understand, you know, the foundation of how to put that dish together. And then, you know, think about the ingredients in that dish and what you could possibly swap out for something a little newer, or, you know, maybe something that you're Quite as used to. Um, A pizza, you can pretty much put anything on a pizza at this point. So, you know, if there's a a new flavor that you've been meaning to try, uh, you know, maybe make that pizza and just, you know, try a little bit of it on that pizza. Um, Worst comes to worst, you know, you put it on one slice of the pizza and you don't like it. Well, you have the rest of the pizza and you'll be okay. And the reason we say this is because this is almost the holy grail um, for somebody working in the industry to create a dish. We, when we concept test dishes, well, you know, ask a whole battery of questions, but kind of the two that are most important to a chef creating a product in the industry are one purchase intent. So, you know, does somebody actually want to purchase this dish that I've created? And then two is uniqueness. You know, it's actually fairly easy to get um, high scores in purchase intent. You could put a piece of pizza on the menu and everybody wants to eat it. That's a very easy way to get it, Um, but it's not unique. Nobody has to come to you to get that, you know, particular dish. They can get it anywhere. And so you also want to be fairly unique. So they have to come to you. Um, But it's also really easy to get very unique scores. So, you know, you could put um, olives in ice cream, and everybody's going to say, yes, that's very unique. But then in the opposite way, you'll see those purchase intent scores go down. Nobody wants to eat olive ice cream. And so if you can create a dish that combines the two and you know sounds delicious, but also is a little bit different, um, that's kind of a slam dunk in the industry and probably will be in some respects a slam dunk in your own kitchen as well.
0: I love the I love the idea of template cooking. You know, like using the templates that you already know in your kitchen um, and then swapping stuff out that is really functional for my listeners at home. Like that's a, that's a concept we can really, you know, wrap our heads around and go, OK, I can handle that. I can I can take my my grain bowl. And then augment it with the ingredients from the regional cuisine from the South. And that's manageable because you know how to, you know how to make your rice and you know that you're building flavor from the bottom up. And at the same time with soups, um, if you know how to make a really good broth, then taking it in a more Asian, uh, way, uh, you know that you need soy, sesame, ginger, garlic, but you know, you know how to build the soup. So thank you for sharing that because sometimes you get these great guests and they have all these great ideas. And my listeners at home are like, what? I, th- no, I, no, I'm not making that. That sounds terrible. That sounds absolutely terrible. Here, here's one thing I really want to try next year. And that is the incorporation of sausages
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, into bread products. So, okay, I know this is I know this is not on your uh, uh, on your on your list, but it does go back to what you were talking about in template cooking. So, Induya is gaining ground here in Los Angeles, right? There is a small restaurant called Rustic Canyon. And oh, my God, the iterations that they, they do with, with that sausage is, oh, it's so enticing. So I, I do want to try my template cooking using that sausage next year.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think um, a really good, I always say, you know, everybody constantly asks, but what's something I can really start with? Um, one, I always say is start with black garlic. Um, You can actually get it at Costco now. You know, everybody loves garlic. You know, people, I I put 10 times the amount of garlic that's called for in a recipe because I love garlic so much. It's the same flavor profile as garlic, but really deep and rich and roasty and toasty. And so anywhere you use garlic, just swap in black garlic um, and it'll become this next level umami rich dish that um, you can't believe came out of your own kitchen. Uh, I I always say that's such a great starting point is black garlic.
0: I love that. I love that. Well, I don't want to hog up your entire day. And I'm so grateful that you've spent so much time with me and my audience. I want to pivot to the three questions. Mm -hmm. I ask every guest because you're not only an expert in your field, but you're also you know, you have your universe of interests and things that you like. So the three things I like to end the show with are what are you drinking? It doesn't have to be alcoholic and it's COVID. So if it is, it's all right. (laughs) No one cares. Um, What's making you happy in the culinary trend world? And what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? So let's start with what are you drinking?
1: I love these questions. What am I drinking? Uh, mine is alcoholic. Maybe that is the one area that I've tried to up my game on the most while I've been at home over the past year is learning how to craft better cocktails and use, you know, more interesting ingredients in cocktails. And so my favorite thing right now is making mold um, wine simple syrup. So actually just taking the spices that you would use in a mold wine and infusing them into a simple syrup. And then you can take that simple syrup and swap it into any um, cocktail that calls for any type of, you know, simple syrup or honey or sugar or whatever it might be. So I made a simple syrup or mold wine, simple syrup Negroni the other day that, you know, had like the bitter flavors that you love in a Negroni, Ooh. but it was really balanced and had that, you know, holiday flavor that you associate with this time of year. Um, that's what I'm drinking right now.
0: When you say mold, you mean M-U-L-L-E-D, like a spiced exactly. wine? Exactly. Okay. Ooh, I got to try that.
1: So good and easy. Anybody can do it.
0: I love that idea. Now, moving on to the next question, what is making you happy? In the culinary trend world?
1: I love this question. You know, what's making me happy in the culinary trend world? Because it has been such a tough year. And I think, you know, people, you know, maybe feel like there's not a lot that we can be thankful for. But if anything, I think, you know, the past year has really shown us the things that really matter to us and that what we can be thankful for. I think the nicest thing that came out of a lot of the research that we did in the past year um, was how much the food industry means to people out there. Um, You know, we had asked a question, you know, what are you excited for when things open back up again? And we thought, you know, that a lot of people would answer, oh, you know, I can't wait to, you know, drink again or I can't wait to have a birthday party again with my family Um, And we thought, you know, those would kind of be the top answers that people would say, and that is important to them. But actually, the number one um, factor for a lot of people uh, was that they couldn't wait to get out and support their local restaurant and food community again. That's why they really wanted to get back there. Um, and so I think you know, and just being in the industry, you know, the way that so many people have come together to help each other—it is, you know, a very cutthroat industry. Uh, margins are very small, uh, but I think in the past year we've seen so many people kind of, you know, forget about all that and just try to help each other survive. Um, I think has been a really nice thing that has come out of the past year.
0: That's nice to hear. I always say that dining out isn't just dining out; that there's so much magic that happens around a table. Life happens around a table and it's it's where you share ideas it's where you share your life experiences and restaurants and eateries are a magical place and they're getting des- they're getting decimated and i really wish that are our- i'm angry at the, at the lack of support of of small businesses i'm angry at the unnecessary level of devastation Uh, in the restaurant business. So I I share your sentiment that it it makes me happy that people want to support, you know, small businesses and restaurants really does. And finally, Mike, (laughs) what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? Ah, great
1: question. My favorite gift to give a friend or colleague is um, a set of good knives, Um, (gasps) or at the very least a good chef's knife. Um, I think so years ago, I gave a set of knives uh, to a a couple of friends who are getting married and I was so excited about it. And then I found out after the fact that it's apparently bad luck to give knives for a wedding because they're sharp and um, it could cut the marriage in half and lead to divorce. (laughs) And so I was like, well, maybe I should stop getting knives. Maybe this is bad luck. But honestly, I, I I still give them, I, you know, I think having a good knife in the kitchen, a good sharp knife um, in the kitchen. um, I mean, that's what should be in your hand all the time. You know, if you really get comfortable with it, the things that you can create with it, uh, you'll have it for the rest of your life. Uh, When you talk to a chef, that's the most important thing in their arsenal. Uh, I just say a a really good knife in the kitchen is absolutely essential.
0: Well, um, I don't have enough knives. <laughs>
1: um, and and a really, you know, a, a design piece these days too. Uh, there's really been well, such um, a growth in knife culture uh, that you see some really beautifully designed knives out there to give as gifts.
0: One of the first shows that I did was a deep dive into Japanese knives. And wow, I was blown away by the variety and quality of knives. Well, Mike, I am so grateful that you spent so much time with us today. And I think that the audience has a lot of great tidbits um, to explore with in their own kitchens. So from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the audience, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, Thank you. I've really enjoyed being uh, on the show. And and I do. I hope people got, you know, a lot out of it. Uh, Like you said, uh, food is about more than food. Uh, You know, eating out is about more than just eating out. It's kind of the one way that we have to connect with, um, you know, our family members or friends um, on the course of a normal day. It's often the only way that we have to be creative um, over the course of a normal day. So, um I hope people really, you know, have a passion for cooking and cuisine and eating in general. Um and, and have a really great 2021. I, I really hope that next year we're gonna see some exciting stuff happen in the industry.
0: Well there you go. Now you're first in line with some of the top food trends to watch in 2021. You can actually download the report on Data Essentials website dataessential.com. That's D-A-T-A-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L.com. I did put everything in show notes, so there's some links, there's resources to help you shop and cook the trends from Food Bites 2021 Trends to Watch. You can get show notes and resources on my website, kitchensceneinvestigator.com. And if you love the show, please do give it a review or support the show with a donation on my website, kitchensceneinvestigator.com. From sunny Los Angeles, Happy New Year. Stay safe, and I will see you next time. Bye.